0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: When briefed about the invasion plan for the 131 square mile island of Grenada, President Reagan told the briefer double the number of troops. When the briefer asked why, President Reagan said if Carter would have sent 18 helicopters to get the hostages instead of nine, he would have been briefing you instead of me. what-ifs about the 1980 election. It's tempting to disagree with Reagan's backward look at the politics of 1980 and whether he would have indeed lost just because Carter rescued the hostage. Just putting that aside, it was a lesson that Reagan had learned about military force the hard way in Lebanon. Having won the 1980 election, at least partially on foreign policy, Reagan could and would make changes in the art of state and reverse the the detente policy of three predecessors. In that way, he was, ironically, like another ideologically different president in 1913. They called it grape juice diplomacy. And it wasn't only that Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan had been one of the more radical candidates for president, that he suggested something akin to the redistribution of wealth in America. It wasn't only that Bryan was defeated by a phalanx of business interests, who raised more money than ever to defeat him, which made him a martyr among Democrats who would give him three party nominations in just 16 years. It wasn't just that Brian was a kingmaker in the party and so helped Woodrow Wilson, a professor and reform governor of New Jersey, get the nomination for president and help himself, Brian, to an office that we know so rarely in history goes to a rival, the Secretary of State. It wasn't just that William Jennings Bryan and Woodrow Wilson sought a shift in foreign policy from the gunboat of Teddy Roosevelt and the dollar diplomacy of William Howard Taft to an outstretched hand to the nations of the world. No, this was not why they called it grape juice diplomacy. It was because William Jennings Bryan banned the serving of alcohol at state dinners and any meetings with ambassadors, in fact, leading a few critics to suggest that the ambassadors got drunk before coming to the State Department and they were thus more belligerent in their policy towards the U.S. Secretary of State seemed an odd choice for the silver-tongued great commoner. He was more of a domestic guy. A low tariff, low prices, cheap money, pro-silver, guy from the West. Yet, Bryant's second presidential run in 1900 was more about foreign policy than his first run. His stance of isolationism against the expansion of McKinley. Brian was, despite his loss, a heavy in politics and world-known. That made him a contender for state. And Wilson and Brian agreed on a new shift in foreign policy, where right was might, where we, the United States, reached out to the world, and, as Wilson would say, we would teach people how to elect good men. Grape juice or missionary diplomacy, it was called. Brian did write a new treaty with Colombia, who we had more or less taken Panama from in order to make the canal. And it was a new treaty that apologized for the action. Or so it did until Republicans complained, and such language was dropped from the treaty. But Latin America got the message about the new administration. There was a tonal difference. Brian concluded negotiations with over 30 nations, in order to attempt to set up an apparatus to avoid war. It wasn't the League of Nations. It wasn't the United Nations. But in an era before the UN, it called for a cooling-off period before any war was to start. Noble attempt; It did not prevent World War I, but it was an outreached hand to the world, and the world got the message. This reflected the ideology of Bryan and Wilson, the ultimate goal they wanted. Yet, Brian and Wilson ended up acting like the old imperialists in Haiti and Nicaragua, where, after many attempts to support democratically elected choices, they ended up setting American-friendly governments up to replace ones that were hostile to the U.S. Even missionaries had their limits. But it was the vast, uncontrolled nation to the south where Wilson and Bryan ran into the most direct challenge to their diplomatic style and the world reality of 1913. Wilson's inauguration and the enactment of progressive laws coincided with violent revolution in Mexico, which to understand we should go back to the French occupation of Mexico, which occurred while we were busy with our own civil war. And here I like to point out that if you celebrate Cinco de Mayo, you celebrate a victory of Mexican forces over the initial French invasion. But after Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, the French sent even more troops, took over Mexico, and installed an Austrian archduke as emperor. His legacy lives on in the center of Mexico City, which looks oddly like Paris. Some say the French influence is present in the cooking of some Mexican foods. The French didn't last long, though. They and their archduke were toppled by a rebel army led by Benito Juarez. President Juarez took over only to be toppled by his own army chief, Porforio Diaz. And the 40 years that followed were a low point for human rights, democracy, but great for business. Porforio Diaz crushed his critics, but made things good for business. 30,000 Americans lived in Mexico by 1913, and 10 billion of assets were there. Diaz was hated, though, by the populace, and in his fourth decade of power, several strong factions rose up against him in all areas of the country. In the south, Emilio Zapata and his rebels. In the north, Francisco Madero and his constitutional liberals. On the border, Pancho Villa's horse raiders. And in the midsection, Alvarado Albregón. In 1910, while Taft was president, warfare broke out between all of these factions and the Diaz government. By the end of his term, Diaz was ousted, Madero had taken over and was elected president, along with a Democratic House of People's Deputies. Then, quite shockingly, his chief of armies, Victoriano Huerta, staged a coup d'etat and arrested the president and his vice president. Madero and his vice president were held for a few days, and in the disorder that followed, they were accidentally killed. Huerta, as Diaz before him, now sought control of Mexico. And, as the only stabilizing force in control of the army, in control of the country, sought recognition from foreign powers. Several nations went along, Japan, Germany, notably Britain. But in the waning months of his presidency, William Howard Taft didn't make any decision. His presidency was ending, and also, he was seeking some leverage on the Mexican government on a trade deal, and wanted to hold off on recognition. Aides to Taft say that if they realized what the incoming president, Woodrow Wilson, would do, they would have recognized Huerta, but we'll never know. What we do know is when Wilson took over, he held back on recognition of this new government. We will not recognize a government of butchers, he said privately. Soon, the troops of Huerta stormed the elected people's deputies and dismissed the body, arresting the Madero supporters. This triggered anger from the remaining Maderoists in the northern area of Mexico, led by Venicio Carranza, and he began rebelling against the Huerta government. The day after the storming of the deputies, the United Kingdom sent their ambassador. This strongly implied approval of Huerta's action. Britain had oil interest in Mexico. America did, too, and Senator Albert Fall of New Mexico and others began to pressure the White House. Theodore Roosevelt also advised recognition of Huerta. But Woodrow Wilson decided on a policy of what he called watchful waiting. He wasn't ready yet to recognize this new government. The second year of his presidency, he took it a step further. He wasn't just going to watch and wait he was going to allow arms to be sold to the opponents of the Mexican government. Arms were embargoed before because the rebel forces, Carranza, Madero, Abregon, Zapata, Villa, had been operating against a legitimate government in Mexico, the Diaz government. But now, Wilson allowed arms sales into Mexico as the U.S. saw no government there that it recognized. It was a... Logical policy in some ways, but also a strange policy. Wilson was criticized both for stalling his policy in Mexico and for increasing the bloodshed there. Missionary diplomacy it was, with a hint of violence. Oil interests continued to pressure Wilson, and he so much so that he told his aides angrily, I am the president of the whole country, not a few oil interests. The arms were helping. Carranza and Pancho Villa, who was also rebelling against the Huerta government at this time. And it was seen as an insult by Huerta and the New Mexican government when a small U.S. Navy whaler boat with no more than 10 sailors landed in Tampico, Mexico. The sailors were captured and paraded through the streets by the Mexican Navy. It was an outrage when the superiors found out what the Mexican Navy in Tampico, Mexico had done. They ordered the U.S. soldiers released, but it was too late. The U.S. Navy had been insulted. The American Navy commander operating in Mexico demanded that a Mexican Navy boat raise a U.S. flag and issue a 21-gun salute. Wilson was in a bit of a dilemma here, had to back up the commander, but he didn't recognize the Huerta government. Huerta wouldn't completely honor the request. How could he? He couldn't take a demand from a country that didn't recognize him as being able to execute that demand. How could he issue a 21-gun salute? He wasn't, according to the U.S. government, in control of his country. How could such a request be made? An apology was issued, but not the full salute that was wanted. Tensions continued, and arms continued to flow into the north, and rebels there made gains and started to move in on Mexico City. At another large Mexican city, Veracruz, on the Gulf Coast, a shipment of arms had come in from Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. This was no doubt to support the Huerta government in its war with rebels to the north. Wilson, citing the Monroe Doctrine, ordered U.S. military forces to seize the port. They did. The Mexican army there retreated, but civilians and sailors mounted a resistance and eight American citizens were killed. Then, as is now, deaths of American soldiers had an impact on public opinion at home. It had been a good 10 years since U.S. soldiers were fighting in the Philippines, and these deaths were shocking. The port of Veracruz was occupied, but now without inflaming Mexican opinion, and even boosting the Huerta government a bit in the eyes of Mexicans. Even the rebel leader, Carranza, who was trying to overthrow the government of Mexico, also protested the Yankee invasion of Mexican territory. Wilson had no intention of a larger invasion outside the port of Veracruz, but he still didn't want to recognize Huerta. So he sought a conference of the ABC nations, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, who recognized Huerta's surrender. His government was crumbling anyway and Carranza marched into Mexico City and took over the government. In a year's time, Wilson recognized Carranza as the legitimate leader of Mexico. But there was still a problem. Pancho Villa wanted power, and he had support of a powerful group, Catholics. Carranza was a secular leader who rubbed the Catholic Church the wrong way, and he saw the Church's power as an obstacle. In Mexico, the Catholic Church was very powerful. Villa, with lots of public support, began rebelling now against the Carranza government, and more. He began to provoke the U.S. When in 1916, Americans on a Mexican train were captured, stripped, and executed, Republicans and newspaper editors urged Wilson to do something. Yet the actions of this lone bandit were not U.S. priority. We'd already recognized the Carranza government was Carranza's problem, to deal with Villa. He has kissed the blood-stained hand that slapped him. Theodore Roosevelt angrily shot out at Wilson's foreign policy, one of many slaps he would take at his rival in 1912. So at this point, maybe to provoke the U.S., maybe to make Carranza look bad, maybe to get arms, or maybe to punish an arms dealer who reneged on a contract after Villa had paid. Villa entered U.S. territory he attacked the town of Columbus, Mexico, killed 10 civilians and eight soldiers, and burnt the town down. America had been attacked in its own territory. We need less grape juice and more grape shot, said an Arizona senator, poking fun at the Wilson Bryan foreign policy. Wilson was now forced to do something, and he tapped a veteran of the Spanish American and Philippine Rebellion Wars, General Jack Pershing to lead a force of 4,800 men into Mexico to find Villa. Along with militia, their numbers would grow to over 6,000. The punitive expedition, as it was called, had the latest in technology in 1916. Armored trucks, wheeled artillery, and a reconnaissance plane. Ostensibly, it was a fast-moving force that could locate the horseman from the air, pin him down, and destroy his forces. Let us examine here Mexico in comparison to today's situation. A president is committed to a more human rights-based approach to foreign policy. That America can promote values as well as its interest. And you have a considerable test of that ideology in the reality of Mexico for Wilson and of Afghanistan for Obama. I would venture to guess that not every American could correctly state what the goals of American forces in Afghanistan are, even though Obama made a recent speech on the subject. There was little understanding about what the goal in Mexico was at the time, as one conservative senator said, I support the president, he knows more than I do, but I can't quite figure out what the policy in Mexico is. But a goal is hard to articulate in a place where there's no controlling force, and where the land is vast and there are many operators within the country, not only the legitimate government. An army is sent into a foreign nation with no intent to conquer, with no intent to topple the more legitimate government, but seemingly to support that government and root out a hostile force operating within. The force sent into Mexico at the time is, proportionate to today's population, about a third of the force being sent into Afghanistan now. But it was concentrated in one place, And it had a purpose, albeit a difficult purpose, of getting one opponent. Mexico is not Afghanistan. It is right next door to U.S. territory. But it is a similar situation given the passage of time. And the distance between Mexico and Afghanistan is more than made up by the technology difference. A bomber now can leave from St. Louis, go after its target, and land back in St. Louis without ever touching the ground anywhere else. A drone programmed with GPS coordinates from Washington can kill a target in Afghanistan. Pershing didn't have drones. He did have one piece of equipment that flew through the sky. But as it turned out, the reconnaissance plane wasn't as good as as later models of the plane would turn out to be in World War I. And as one observer said, was not good for much more than barn stunts. The plane could never be used to locate the bandits at all. Any mission with one person as a target is difficult. Wilson forbid Pershing from using Mexican rails, which would have made the operation a lot quicker, but probably would have stopped Mexican rail traffic and the movements of the Mexican army, which would have angered the Carranza government. Pershing had to truck everything, and this was 1916. Automobiles had developed, but the roads in Mexico were mostly unpaved. The population was hostile and got more so as the Pershing expedition went on and followed Villa deeper and deeper into Mexican territory, sometimes following on no more than a hint or a rumor. Hundreds of miles. Wilson had really only negotiated a right to pursue from Carranza. The Pershing forces really didn't have a right to occupy territory in Mexico or to stay in Mexico for any long time. Carranza's government allowed that if Villa entered the U.S. and escaped into Mexico, American forces could pursue. And vice versa. If Villa's forces went into the U.S., Carranza forces could enter the U.S. to pursue him. Of course, Carranza's government had no intention of entering the U.S. But As the Pershing expedition went on and went deeper into Mexican territory, it became more like an invasion. Public opinion in Mexico was making it difficult for the force to operate. No one was communicating, no one was cooperating. In some cases, forces supporting Carranza and forces supporting Villa combined to harass and attack the Pershing expedition. Pershing's forces captured some of Villa's lieutenants, but Villa was never found. Under pressure from the Carranza government, Wilson eventually called back Pershing, but Villa did not enter U.S. territory again, and the bandit would reach higher in 1920. It might be said that the operation wasn't completely unsuccessful. In ensuring the stability of the Carranza government by keeping Villa on the run, the U.S. had a better ally to its south, and despite several German attempts to turn Mexico against us during World War I, Mexico remained an ally.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The series of events that would lead President Reagan to send troops into Lebanon is not hard to describe. It involves an ancient Catholic sect, a cranky prime minister, TV pitchers, an overzealous diplomat, a civil war, an aide who threatened to resign, and... Well, let's just throw them in, the French. Lebanon, although in the Middle East, where Muslims are the majority, had a large Christian population. The Maronite Catholics have been in Lebanon since the 5th century AD, and they've been in communication with the Pope since the 12th century, making them a branch of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1932, they were the majority of Lebanon. And they made the Constitution then so that they would always have a majority in the legislative branch and pretty much always have the presidency. Although by the 60s this had changed, Muslims were now the majority in Lebanon, the rules were kept the same. And the Christians who had organized into militias wanted to keep it this way. This was a volatile situation and by 1975 civil war broke out in Lebanon. This gunfire in a distant land was not enough to trigger the attention of the United States. Certainly, Lebanon did not figure in the campaign of 1980, nor in the rhetoric of candidate Ronald Reagan. He was more focused on the Soviet Union or the hostages in Iran. By 1982, 100,000 people had died. Still, these deaths would not trigger U.S. attention or put Lebanon on the radar. What did was an action of Lebanon's neighbor. In 1981, Syria got concerned that Christian forces under Bashir Gamayel, came a little bit too close to the border. And so, Syrian forces got involved and bombed the town of Zul on the Syrian border. The bombed-out nation the size of Connecticut, this vacant lot in the Middle East, was now troubling its neighbors. Israel got concerned that there could be a hostile country on its borders if Syria got involved in the conflict. Now, with Israel and Syria both firing... This got the attention of the Reagan administration. Reagan sent Philip Habib, a veteran of the State Department in the Middle East, to negotiate a ceasefire. Habib got it and earned the respect of President Reagan. But Syria and Israel were not the only problem. Now the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization under Yasser Arafat, got involved. They began attacks on Galilee, where Israeli citizens were living. Israel now had causes belli and entered Lebanon to make war with the Palestine Liber- The Israeli Defense Forces raided Beirut destroyed uh, in an attempt to destroy the PLO headquarters. This put Reagan in a predicament. President Reagan had been a supporter of Israel since he was a liberal Democrat for human rights reasons. After suffering the Holocaust, the Jewish people deserved their own land, he felt. He never gave up his support of Israel. As a conservative Republican, he felt Israel was important to support. It was critical to U.S. security. But this situation was a bit different and ran into some other concerns of the Reagan administration. The images of the raid played badly on TV. The PL headquarters uh, may have been hit, but so were civilians. And the pictures of bodies being pulled from the rubble didn't look good on TV for a president that was ultimately concerned with television. Israel's calculations were a lot different from the U.S. calculations. Reagan sent Habib to negotiate an Israel PLO ceasefire. This was a bit tougher and required support from Saudi Arabia, but Habib got it done. And again, earned the gratitude of President Reagan for a diplomatic job well done. For about a year, this ceasefire would be in effect and Lebanon would be cool and off American radar. Relations between Israel and the Reagan administration, despite Reagan's ideological support for Israel, would be difficult. When American companies sought to sell AWACS aircraft, this was a special, powerful surveillance aircraft, to Saudi Arabia, The Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, opposed it, came to Washington, met with Reagan, and, discussing the point with Reagan, said he would go no further. He wouldn't make any public statement. At least this is what Reagan aides say. He then went over to the Capitol and began lobbying congressmen and went on American TV with a statement against the AWACS sale. Reagan wasn't happy. His personal credibility, Reagan felt. Was on the line. Couldn't allow this other nation to tell America what to do, even a nation that we supported. Reagan told Senator Slade Gordon of Washington that his personal credibility was now on the line, and he gathered the votes to approve the AWAC sale. Had Begin not made the TV speech, many felt the sale would have been opposed. Then Israel annexed the Golan Heights. This was an area that they had won in the 1967 Six Day War. But Pushing through an annexation after tensions were supposed to be soothed and momentum was towards peace after the Camp David Accords it was a belligerent step to many eyes. Caspar Weinberger, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, pushed Reagan to cancel $300 million in defense contracts with Israel. Reagan didn't like this. and He called in the U.S. ambassador and told him, We are not a vassal state. We are not a banana republic. We won't be pushed around. For two allies and two conservatively-minded politicians, Begin and Reagan, tensions couldn't be stronger. June second, 1982, the Israeli ambassador to Great Britain was killed by Arab terrorists. In retaliation, Israel blew up a sports stadium in Beirut. The PLO escalated, again attacking Galilee. And this is where Israel, while Reagan was away at an economic summit in Vienna, told Secretary of State Haig that they were invading Lebanon and did so. They told Haig it would only be a few days. Boy, this guy makes it hard to be your friend, Reagan would say to aides of Menachem Begin. Under Ariel Sharon, Israel's forces would destroy Syrian air power and its surface-to-air missiles in Lebanon. The Israeli defense forces would march to Beirut. Reagan asked for a truce. Begin gave him two days. But in the meantime, the IDF surrounded Beirut to prevent supplies and more fighters from coming in to help the PLO fighters that were there. Reports were there were some 500,000 civilians living in the western part of Beirut, the Muslim side, and about 20,000 PLO fighters. Israel's goals, as stated, was to capture, eliminate, in one way or the other, these fighters. Then, Israel began bombing West Beirut, and the images of the bombing were captured on American TV. Menachem Begin was summoned, ordered, really, to the White House. It was not the friendliest of visits. Mad about the AWACS sale and uh, Begin's lobbying, Reagan was not warm. He read the U.S. position from an index card, according to aides. There was no small talk. The invasion of Lebanon was raised. The invasion of Lebanon was raising tensions. And Israel needed to think seriously about it. Begin said it was not an invasion. Israel was not seeking territory. But he asserted they would not leave until the Syrians and the Iranians did. Uh, A press conference was scheduled, which Reagan considered letting Begin walk out alone for. He later regretted that he didn't do just that. Begin used the moment of the press conference on TV with the leader of the free world to imply support for Israel's invasion. He called Reagan, my friend, innocent enough. He said the discussion was fruitful, or clearly it had not been. He then stated his view that the Israeli war effort wasn't an invasion. Israel sought no territory. The TV image of Begin and Reagan together implied support. Indeed, headlines the next day would say Reagan backs Israel. When a few days later, massive bombardment of West Beirut would begin. It looked like the U.S. supported the effort. They did not. They condemned it. But the State Department press releases on the matter rang hollow. Reagan asked Philip Habib once again to cool off the tensions. To stop the fighting and get the images off TV. It was here. Here, in the panicked moment, here, in the efforts of a low-level diplomat, that U.S. forces were proposed. Israel wanted the PLO fighters out of Beirut and out of Lebanon, out of the, uh, away from the Israeli border. They could get them out themselves or eliminate them themselves using their IDF forces, which had surrounded the city. Or they would allow a trusted ally to do it, They could even accept the Syrians taking the PLO fighters away to Syria, but they had to be out of this Connecticut-sized country on Israel's borders. So in order to get the ceasefire, there had to be some neutral party enforcing. Habib agreed to a small U.S. force, and of course, since Habib couldn't commit to that, he got the commander-in-chief, Reagan, to, quote, agree in principle. Caspar Weinberger didn't like it. The Joint Chiefs felt it was unwise. Reagan thought he might be able to negotiate the final deal and maybe not send troops at all. This is where Israeli newspapers leak the story of the plan and the U.S. participation, which the Pentagon felt strongly was Ariel Sharon's doing. Leaking it, he felt, might turn American opinion against the peacekeeping effort and kill the plan. Sending American troops in a post-Vietnam world, not a popular thing. But it had the opposite effect. America was now committed in public. Reagan was outed. And and other people moved on the plan as well once it was public. France offered to help. Newspaper editorials supported Reagan's move. And probably just as convincing as all of these things, the Soviet Union came out against the plan. But Despite all these movements, the plan was still just in the talking phase until the fall of 1982. It was then in August. That Israel resumed bombing, public opinion would turn against Israel in the world, be one of the lowest moments for world opinion of Israel. But public opinion was also turning against the invasion in Israel itself, where three hundred thousand people marched through Tel Aviv to protest the invasion. It was at this moment, with the bombing on the day, on the bombing on the TV each night, the bombing of West Beirut, on the TV each night, that Reagan aide. Michael Deaver, one of his most trusted aides, a confident man, marched into the the Oval Office and said, I can't be part of this. You're the only person in the world, he said to Reagan, who can stop the bombing. You must call Begin. Deaver's advice mattered to Reagan, and he immediately responded, get Begin on the phone. Deaver wasn't alone in his feelings. Secretary of State Schultz, the new secretary appointed after the resignation of Alexander Haig, agreed as well. What followed was a tense phone call between Reagan and the Prime Minister of Israel. Menachem, Reagan said, this is a holocaust. It must stop. Reagan was more emotional than he had been in any other discussion with the Prime Minister. Reagan responded angrily at first. Mr. President, I know very well what a holocaust is. But he also got the message. Reagan wasn't fooling around. Twenty minutes later, Menachem Reagan came back on the line he said he had ordered a ceasefire and removed Ariel Sharon from command. Yet, for the latest ceasefire to work, a multinational force would be needed. Someone would have to enforce the ceasefire. And so, 800 U.S. Marines and 350 French paratroopers flew into Beirut. It was a very tense situation. Hundreds of Marines, between 30,000 Israeli defense forces and at least 15,000 Syrian and PLO fighters. Keeping the peace between two hostile forces wasn't easy, particularly when one of those hostile forces at that time was Israel, despite being our ally, despite our support for Israel, there were incidents of harassment, there were a few times that American troops were fired on, and we faced a lot of trouble with clearing Israeli mines, mines that were delivered to Israel by the U.S. and supposed to be for their defense and not to be used in Lebanon. The multinational force was also cramping the style of the Israeli Defense Forces. They were used to walking around West Beirut as they saw fit. Now, Americans and French had to stop them from doing so and restrict their movements. It seemed like a flawed plan, yet it worked. The fighting in Beirut stopped, at least initially. In fact, it looked like a masterstroke for President Reagan. And he sought to cement it by proposing a broader peace plan, building on Jimmy Carter's Camp David Accord, providing for Palestinian citizenship, uh, providing for Israel to give up the 1967 war gains, and brokering peace through King Hussein of Jordan. Israel's not pleased. But in Lebanon, at least, with a multinational force in place, they got what they wanted. Bashir Gamayel, the Christian leader, friendly to Israel, was installed as president. Yet this was still one of the first major U.S. military operations since Vietnam, and public opinion was touchy. The Defense Department, led by Caspar Weinberger, and the Joint Chiefs, wary of the mission, wanted it to end, and a 30-day timetable had been proposed when the troops were first sent. For these reasons, Reagan, after proposing the peace plan, Reagan ordered the Marines back to ships off the Mediterranean. This action happened so quick that it surprised the French, who also made plans to withdraw. The reason for what happened next is debated. Was it a result of the Marine withdrawal or not? Secretary of State Schultz and Philip Habib opposed the withdrawal of the Marines. Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger was for the withdrawal. Whether one event led to the other or not, Bashir Gemayel was assassinated in a bombing of his party headquarters. There was now complete and total anarchy in the country, and with no multinational forces present in Beirut, Israel again entered Lebanon and quickly reached Beirut, surrounding the western side of the city. This prevented new PLO fighters or Syrians from entering. Then, for 60 hours, the Christian militia, fresh off the assassination of their leader, was allowed in, ostensibly to find PLO fighters, but in the end they killed 700 people in an unchecked massacre. When Begin spoke at a UN conference, two thirds of the delegates walked out. Again, the Reagan administration sought to stop the fighting, and to stop it now, a new multinational force was needed. This one for a longer stay, and now with 1,500 or 1,500 American soldiers. The Prussian General Clausewitz said, War is politics by other means. In reading history, I haven't seen much reason to doubt him. In Lebanon, politics failed and civil war broke out. Politics failed and neighbors invaded. Peacekeeping failed and assassination and massacre resulted. So politics try tried again. The new multinational force had success. Gemayel's brother was installed in the presidency. By the Christian majority in the assembly. A new Lebanese army was established, led by Christians, but with some more Muslim participation. In an event that would be difficult to imagine happening today, U.S. Marines were cheered even by Shiite Muslims as they entered Beirut. These were the peacekeepers. After the ravaging and the killing that the wet population of West Beirut had suffered, these Americans and French were their only hope. Reagan saw Lebanon as the new milestone. America, he said, was back. We've closed the book on a long, dark period of failure and self-doubt and set a new course. The new multinational force would quiet Lebanon from fall 82 to spring 83, at least in terms of of Lebanon being on American radar. But gradually, the new Gamayel government was seen by Muslims as a puppet state for Israel. Americans came to be viewed as supporting the status quo. In May, our embassy in Beirut was bombed. Although there was a ceasefire between the Syrians, the Israelis, the PLO, and the Christian militias, there was one group that formed called the National Salvation Front, composed of various radical Muslim groups, even a few radical Christian groups who did not support the Gamayel government they decided they had nothing to do with that peace agreement. They would attack Lebanese army forces and the multinational forces well. This is a dilemma for peacekeepers. What do you do if a group declares war on you? When you go from a neutral to a target. This is one of the America's early peacekeeping operations. And so not all the rules were clear. The soldiers in the multinational force... Italian, French, and U.S. had index cards which gave them instructions. Their weapons were not to be loaded unless hostile force was threatened. In Washington, Weinberger asked Reagan for permission to use the Navy's artillery against this new group, the National Salvation Front, in their positions in order to assist the legitimate government and the Lebanese army in maintaining control of the country. Navy artillery was used in a battle where uh, Lebanese army forces had been pinned down by the National Salvation Front, which changed the tide of the battle and gave confidence to the Lebanese army. And marines began training the Lebanese army. But our neutrality was compromised. When a key Muslim leader called for Muslims participating in the government to leave and for soldiers in the Lebanese army to leave or be attacked, many did. Leaving the Government and the Lebanese army is mostly a Christian enterprise, with us supporting it. Congressional support was waning. Tip O'Neill, the Democratic Speaker of the House, had provided bipartisan cover to the Reagan administration and would refuse to criticize Lebanon until all troops were home. Though he kept his questions for private, other congressmen and senators began raising questions. Reagan became defensive. Our interests are at stake in Lebanon, he would say. At the Beirut International Airport, where American forces were stationed. Over 2,000 passengers a week were now coming into Beirut. The country perhaps could get back on its feet. It was on October 28, 1983, when a yellow truck would speed towards the Marine barracks near the airport. The guards, under the instructions and the rules of engagement, could not stop the vehicle with force. By the time they had loaded and shouldered their weapons, the truck smashed into the compound with the equivalent of 12,000 pounds of of dynamite. 220 Marines, 18 sailors, three Army soldiers, and an elderly Lebanese custodian died. 60 were wounded. It was the worst single-day loss for the U.S. Marine Corps since World War II. The truck, as it turned out, was a water delivery truck that had been hijacked. It was not hard to imagine. Not far from the airport villages, which the soldiers joked and called Khomeini Villes. Nor was it wholly an American tragedy. French paratroopers looking from the other side of the airport to see what was going on would, a few minutes later, be blown out of their own barracks as a bomb exploded there. Fifty-eight French were killed on the same day. But Reagan... Would not announce a withdrawal after this tragedy. we have vital interest in Lebanon, he asserted, but after a few more months when the when the Lebanese government again collapsed, Reagan ordered Reagan ordered the peacekeeping force out. Lebanon may have sunk a lesser president. The mistakes that were made there, a lack of a clear mission, lack of force, no support from the populace, an uncontrolled ground. But part of the reason Reagan did not suffer from Lebanon was that soon after the event, U.S. forces would invade Grenada. Still, Lebanon was one of the goofiest operations ever mounted, Colin Powell would say years later. As a Pentagon report would would indicate, Lebanon was a country beset with every problem of the Middle East. Reagan's defense that we had vital interests in Lebanon rang hollow to anybody who knew better. Yet there was something admirable in the Lebanon operation. It was an early American attempt at peacemaking. It attempted to broaden our policy choices, to make us a player in the Middle East, an honest broker. It was linked with an attempt to build on Jimmy Carter's Camp David Accord, working as President Clinton later would through King Hussein of Jordan as a moderate ally. It was a diversion from Reagan's one-track rhetoric against the Soviet Union that demonstrated that he was a thinker and a game-time decision-maker and in control of policy choices. We don't know what would have happened if U.S. forces had stayed in initially instead of uh, leaving after 30 days, if the massacre in West Beirut would not have happened. Caspar Weinberger later wrote that there is no way that the withdrawal caused the massacre or the assassination of Gamayel. Why were American troops in a bombed-out Middle East country? Because Lebanon may not have been vital as a country to U.S. security, but the Middle East was. And the big problem in the Middle East in 1982 and 1983 was Lebanon. Therefore, it was in our interest. For a president routinely labeled as a warmonger, Lebanon was an indication that Ronald Reagan could seek peace as well, When the operation was hopeless, Reagan didn't linger with it. He didn't worry about the politics of withdrawing. He left. Mexico and Lebanon are certainly not the only two places in history where American forces have operated, where presidents have been committed to. But what does looking at these two conflicts tell us, perhaps, about Afghanistan? Obama has been committed there, as Reagan was to Lebanon, as Wilson was to Mexico. As a candidate, Afghanistan was the right war. Iraq had been, as candidate Obama labeled it, the wrong war. And Afghanistan, of course, seems that way. This is where all reports indicate that bin Laden was after 9-11, if he was alive at all. Certainly, al-Qaeda has operations there, with the help and the cover of the Taliban government. Arboration 2001, using allies, CIA covert ops. Bribes, drones, airstrikes, Tomahawk missiles destroyed the Taliban in a few months. But by 2005, the Taliban was back, rebuilding. The chaos and the neglect while the Iraq war waged on. Like Wilson and Reagan, the current commander-in-chief faces a limited range of options. He just can't do anything even though the Constitution gives him complete control over foreign policy. Well, more or less. On one extreme, there would be complete withdrawal of U.S. forces on the other, a giant escalation. In reality, though, either of these choices would be politically impossible, and there would be real consequences to these actions as well. For Reagan and his negotiator Habib, something from the U.S. was needed, and signing off on peacekeepers was the only way to go to get the ceasefire they desired. Once Pancho Villa had entered New Mexico, congressional pressure forced Wilson's hand. Both presidents sought surgical operations, narrowly defined use of a small amount of American forces. Both presidents operated with a force too small to be directly effective. And they operated in an area where there was no control over supply lines, Mexico's impassable roads and Lebanon's mine streets reduced the advantage that the U.S. had from its technology and military prowess. I would argue that President Obama is engaging in the same surgical operation in Afghanistan. It is a limited amount of troops, little more than 60,000, in a nation twice the size of Germany. As in Lebanon and in Mexico, Afghanistan is another means for politics. There will not be any giant battle between a large American army and a huge Taliban force out in the open desert. There will be many operations. The Taliban will crop up in certain places and forces will have to be concentrated there. We support a government as credible as the Mexican government of Carranza or the Lebanese government of Gamayel, a government that is partisan and has many opponents. We run the risk of losing our neutrality, as we had perhaps in those other regions, in those other operations. And we have to face the fact that even at a surge level, we will not be able to accomplish everything we want. We shouldn't be fooled by the presence of military troops, men in fatigues, It is politics that is at work in Afghanistan and the success of the Karzai government that we've linked ourselves to, the support of the Afghan people for our operation, the support of NATO allies, the tolerance of the Russians. who are growing increasingly wary of our Afghanistan operations. We have troops so close to their border. These are the factors that will determine the success of the operation. It is... As Klauswitz told us, an extension of politics by other means. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can get the archive there, $9.99, to go over some of the podcasts available in the archive. Uh, one about the Great Depression, about previous financial panics, about the Electoral College, talking about guns in America. Talking about the relationship between Britain and France and America, the history of the Federal Reserve, presidential sons and daughters, the varying roles of the Congress and the President, the Commander-in-Chief versus the Appropriator-in-Chief, Survivor Island and the Constitution. Those are just some of the podcasts available there. It's $9.99. Thank you for your support. Those of you who have purchased it. I'm also very pleased that we've exceeded our sixth, uh, 600th member of the Facebook site, so we got about 617 members there at the time of recording. Appreciate that. It's a great, some vibrant discussions going. As the number of members increase on the site, there's a vibrant discussion going. I try to answer questions where I can, uh, and some really good ideas come out of the uh, discussion and comments from listeners. Thanks very much for listening.